Is there enough German wine in your life? Aside from some of the most incredible Riesling on this earth, Germany is the third largest and one of the most acclaimed producers of Pinot Noir in the world. There, the grape is known as Spätburgunder. Discover more about German wine at GermanWineUSA.com or on social media at GermanWineUSA. This is a moment in wine and hip-hop. Brought to you by Crew Love. Blending wine and hip-hop at the highest level. Wine and hip-hop. Wine and music. Tell me about it. Check this out. Oh, yeah. You'll be the life of the party. Wine and hip-hop really mirrors the, the conversations that we have in my office about wine and music. Yeah, what's good, y'all? It's your boy Jermaine Showtime Stone, a.k.a. The Wolf of Wine, a.k.a. The Zara Vibes, a.k.a. Young Thanos. We got a special one. Mm. You know, a lot a lot of people could say they, they was there, but, you know, there, there's some people that wasn't there. But, John, you was there, man. We got John Dawson, <laughs> a.k.a. DJ Jabaz, Justice System, QFC. How you feeling, man? Uh, peace, peace. <laughs> uh, feeling great. Feeling great. Feeling blessed. And really excited to be here with you today. I'm a big fan of your podcast. And so um, it's an honor and a pleasure. And uh, I'm just, I'm very thankful, man. Thanks for having me on. Dope, man. Dope. This is going to be a really interesting show. I don't get the opportunity to chop it up with a lot of people that have their foot in both wine and hip hop in the way that you do have your history in in both industries. Um, So I think this is just really interesting and, people will be really inspired to hear your story. So thank you for joining us, man. It's a pleasure. Um, I've been checking out your podcast. It's, it's really well done. Um, so I feel like it's an honor and privilege to, to be able to, to build with you in this setting. Definitely, man. Definitely. I really appreciate you coming on. So um, we could just jump right into it, man. You, you whine and you hip hop. So, you know, yeah. I, I, I think this is always a fun question to get to know people. Uh, who is your rap spirit animal? So if you could choose any artist other than yourself <laughs> that personifies your style and your spirit, what rapper would that be? Wow. Um, in terms of MC, there's no question. It's Karis One. Mm. No question. In about four seconds, a teacher will begin to speak. I played the nine and you played the target. You're all on my name, so I guess I'll just start it. Or should I say start this? Start this. I'm Chris, uh, you know, the emphasis on originality, you know, you, you go back to his, um, the first single off his second album, uh, you know, My Philosophy, right? And, you know, he says in that song, you got to have style and learn to be original. And to me, originality, being original, finding your own sense of expression, finding your purpose in life and expressing that in the only way you can vibrate that and do that and have that purpose, have that drive, have that, you know, that essence of living built around that. Um, doing your own thing that it just hit me and a lot of friends my age growing up, you know, in the late eighties or whatever. And um, it, it, it just inspired us, you know, me, you know, personally, I'll speak, just speak for myself, just inspired me to always <clears throat> do my own thing and be proud of doing my own thing and not being afraid to do my own thing. And um, both in music and my professional career and everything. So, so Chris, besides the fact that Chris looked out for me and, and my people a couple of times in New York, um, 
maybe we'll get to that later on in the early 90s, mid 90s, when um, <laughs> when we were knuckleheads. <laughs> well, before I was a lawyer. Well, before I was a lawyer. <laughs> right. <laughs> See, uh, thank you for um for the segue, man. So you you um and it, this is just so funny because I feel like your story is so reminiscent of mine. You spent um now. We know each other uh, through your dad, Mr. John Dawson, RIP, legend. Um, yeah. He he worked at with me at Zaki's uh, coming up, and he was he was a legend. He was like the guy that ran the store. I mean, if you knew Zaki's, you knew John. He was like the number one sales guy. Um, now, for you, what was that like coming up, and how did that? seeing your dad come up inspire you to get into the wine business wow okay that's a, that's a great question um so pops uh he was a complex person he was a very complex person and um uh he was a hippie radical he went to woodstock um he let's just say he was a, a street pharmacist in the early 70s late 60s people don't know that um My i saw man. him but then i saw him you know, I, right. So he probably never told you that, but, um, uh, but I saw him evolve, you know, um, my parents had me really young. They were, they were like total hippies, you know, and, um, you know, so I saw him evolve. I saw wine, you know, by the time he, his second marriage to Anita, uh, and, and the whole Zara family, you know, um, uh, his second wife, Anita, uh, her parents were from Italy. Uh, her, her mom was, uh, from La Marca, uh, and her dad was from Sardinia. And um, my dad went to Italy a couple of times. I think that's where he really caught the bug, you know, to like see it being produced there by people, uh, wine and, and um, tasting stuff that, you know, people will never, ever taste, you know, old Cannonau that just very few bottles were made. And, um, and he knew that he was under something incredible. And I saw that passion and purpose come up through him, you know, after seeing him be kind of a knucklehead when I was a kid and remembering him. <laughs> see him suddenly have this, this focus, you know? And then even after Anita passed away, you know, he worked for the International Wine Center with Mary Ewing Mulligan, the, the first female master of wine in the United States. Um, saw him be a consultant for all kinds of restaurants. He was a, a consultant, consulting wine buyer for the whole Planet Hollywood franchise and some of their related restaurant uh, ventures. And, um, and we just vibed on it. You know, we, we, if we talked about politics, sometimes it'd get a little hectic. If we talked about other things that could get a little hectic, but we could talk about wine and music and we both were filled with joy in doing that. And that's how we got really close. And so um, he was just always encouraging me to follow my passion for wine and follow my passion for music. And so, um, yeah, he definitely taught me so much. I mean, since mm -hmm. the age of 10 about German wines, uh, as a kid, you know, we drank a lot of Chianti Classical Reservas from the seventies, Barolos from the seventies. Um, you know, it started with like a little tiny pour, and every year got a little bigger, <laughs> a little bigger. And then um, seeing him, you know, he worked at the post office for 30 years or something. And then uh, and then he retired from that so he could then go work full time in wine. Uh, he got his pension or whatever. And um, and that's where he really blossomed. And that's, you know, Zachy's was where that really happened, that blossoming. He'd always been in the game, you know, wine and, and knew so many people mm -hmm. and taught so many people, inspired so many people. But Zachy's was a platform by which he could really live it. 24 seven. And, and it just gave him, you know, such joy. I mean, it's real because, and look, in a lot of ways, if he didn't exist, I wouldn't even be here doing this because, you know, he uh, was so influential to my mentor, Michael Jessen coming up in the game. And he's definitely a big part of the reason that I'm here. So without John, 
Michael wouldn't exist. Without Michael, Jermaine wouldn't exist and so on and so forth it goes. <laughs> That's that's wild. You know, exactly. You know, uh, you think you think of hip hop producers. You know, you think of the RZA, right? Like, <laughs> look, look at how many people came through the RZA. You know, the whole Wu Tang, the way he was able to organize that whole collective. You know, uh, you know between Jizza and you know Jizza been doing his own thing, but that didn't really work out, right? And then so RZA's like, okay, we're gonna get this whole collective of people and then bring these people up, give them time, school them, educate them. You know, in some ways. Pops is kind of like the avid, I guess, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> very, uh, very avid. People who like, like, yeah. And they got to hey, guys, hey, guys! Sorry for executive producer to step in on the stage. All right, sure. <laughs> but uh, just to be, just, this is why, this is why, just so the story, just so the stories are, uh, is um, the the right memory of what what happened, the who, the when, the what is correct. Uh, you know, it it was actually our man. Jack Daw here, John Dawson Jr. That was, if it weren't for him, it wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have met his father. And wow. actually he, John was, John, and then, I mean, we don't have to get convoluted about the, uh, like the story for this thing, but really to sum it up, if it weren't for John, it wouldn't have mm. been meeting John's dad. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been even having that spark for wine. There was a night, John, you remember, you brought 85 Hal Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> right yep. remember oh, and there was yeah. the Hootie, the hermitage that ben had and like it, it, this was october of 01 you know or you know it was shortly after so but uh jermaine just to give the story and the proper props mm -hmm. this is the man that uh you owe a lot to dude wow get out of here okay <laughs> all right John, John, remember sorry i don't i never do this except for now because i am an executive producer normally like whatever <laughs> i don't know anything about anything but i want to make sure this thing is Right. It's, it's of tight. course, there's going to be the right editing and all that stuff. But just so you know, it was John before John Pops. Got you. Got yeah. you. Pops. All, right. all right, man. Sorry, guys. I don't mean to, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I, no. I, I this is important. I want to make sure we get it. We, we've got it. We got it straight. Right, and, right. And I, I just know John. John is very modest. He's a modest guy. And I, <laughs> he, he deserves a lot of credit, a lot of props and a lot of uh, getting getting telling uh, his history. So anyway, I'm out. You guys, uh, keep going. <laughs> that was a dope okay. cameo. I like, I like the way. <laughs> that was very cool. Uh, but you know, fact checking. I'm gonna, I'm gonna check those facts there. We gotta get that live. <laughs> um, no, but you know, I was mentioning earlier. I feel like um, we have such a similar history because you are, you're a wine lawyer right now, but you came up in hip hop. Now, uh, can you tell me a little yep. bit about your your hip hop days? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna cover a lot of stuff really quickly because <laughs> I can be loquacious and verbose. It's, I get it's paid all by good, the man. It's, I got paid, paid by the word, right? <laughs> it's, it's a podcast, you know. Don't worry, we got time. Okay, all right. So here we go. Um, hip hop. Uh, all right. Well, first, you know, talking about my pops and and how he got so many people into wine. Um, believe it or not, my pops actually got me into hip hop in the 70s unintentionally. Um, so again, pops was a hippie radical, um, didn't have a car in the 70s. Um, we uh, and we live in Mount Vernon, uh, live in Mount Vernon. I was born in Yonkers, uh, raised in Mount Vernon until I was like eight. Uh, parents split up when I'm like five. Um, my dad would pick me up from my mom's mom's house on the north side of Mount Vernon. And the closest train station from there was the Fleetwood station. So we'd walk down the Fleetwood station, catch the train, go down to Mount Vernon West near where his uh, second wife's family lived, uh, the Azara family down on uh, the south side of Mount Vernon. 
And when you get out of the Mount Vernon West Station right there, that's really this, this kind of corner where the Bronx, Mount Vernon, and Yonkers all meet. Right, right by, um, by Carpenter Avenue area. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so um, so we'd have to then take a cab from there to um, Grandma Zara's house, uh, my dad's, uh, you know, Anita Zara's family. So the cabs would be from Mount Vernon and from the Bronx. And um, some of those cabs, especially the Bronx cabs, were like the old school OJs. And those cabs, I'm talking 78, 79, uh, they would be playing cassette tapes from hip hop parties at, at various clubs that would get recorded. So remember, the first hip hop music that people would hear in recorded format was the cassettes, the tapes made from the parties. The live, I just, I just want to, I just want you parties. guys, I, I just need to pause just for a second. So you guys can really understand the level of hip hop that we're going to right now. This is, this is the ground level. This is the real shit right now. I keep on, I keep on, I keep the break your door. I like this, y'all. I like that. And let the punk machine to put my heart attack. I'm just a mess. It don't stop. I keep on, I keep the heart chop. I girls, I rock the house. I fly kids, I rock the house. A mess, rock, y'all. It don't stop. I keep on, I keep the break your door. The grandmaster's in the house. He's fooling out. I turn the motherfucker out. Over the board, rock on. I'm sorry, John. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's deserving of that, that, that pause. And um, it's, it's really important. And uh, so, so that was it. So we get in the car, we get in the cab, right? And um, my uh, grandma's hour, her house was at um, South 2nd Avenue uh, by Brush Park. Pretty much like when the last houses in Mount Vernon go through Brush Park, you're basically in the Bronx, right? So so it was not that long a ride, but it was a long enough ride. We get in, and the music would be playing. Now you, you gotta catch remember, a vibe. so I'm living with my mom. She did have a car. We drive around, and my mom you listened. To, you know, so with my mom though, the vibe was more of the disco stations and stuff. And I was like, oh, a lot. So many of the disco songs had women <laughs> singers, female singers, right? And you know, I'm a boy growing up, and I'm like looking for that, you know, I don't know, testosterone, I don't know, some, something yeah. manly, masculine. <laughs> And I was just not getting it from disco at all. I'm sorry, right? At least then, <laughs> at least what my mom was playing on the radio most of the time. And and so we'd be in these cabs with my pops and I would hear this incredible music that I just never heard anything like before. This incredible syncopation. Like, <laughs> nope. Yeah, one more time. Do it up, y'all. Boom. Come on. One time. Back check again. it out, check it out. Just kiss it, hey. let it rock the house. Sure enough, everybody gonna turn it out. Well, okay, you rock well. And then you hear people rhyming, and it was like, it was, it was, look, in terms of hip hop lyricism, it was not the most, you know, lyrically magical moment, but it was clever, it was funny, it was rhyming, and as a kid, I was like, I could say these rhymes, I and mean, this is cool as hell. I didn't know half the stuff that they're saying what it really meant, right? <laughs> you know, Chiba-Chiba um, or whatever, whatever, right? But I just felt this sense of uh, energy and um, and fun that was coming through uh, these songs on these on these cassette tapes that would be playing in these cabs. Do and you so remember? Do you remember any of the any of those artists that you were hearing at that time? Just to kind of paint a picture a little bit. 
Or was it just more a bunch you, of I, underground dudes? It was just, it, it, it was probably Cold Crush. Like in retrospect, it was probably Cold Crush. Um, uh, but I don't remember any of the, any of the rhymes particularly, it, it, you know, back in the day, you know, hip hop was so much about routines. Like you'd, you, you know, to be an MC, you'd get up at a party, you couldn't just start rapping. You had to connect with the crowd. You right. had to um, relate to them in a way. And routines was a way that people used to do that. So routine back in the day, wasn't just like you start rhyming. It's like you take something from a TV theme song, from a TV show, from something else, from a, from a, a famous, I don't know, opera or something or a comedy show. And then you, you integrate that as like a chant into your performance so that everyone can relate to it. And then you start rhyming after everyone is like, you know, kind of vibing with you. Like so I remember up, those like... routines. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and you know, there'd be some singing. Right. And, and as a kid, I was like, it was almost like a cartoon. It was like, oh my God. <laughs> but with like cool music and cool sounding people. I had no idea what it was, but I looked forward to those cab rides a lot and we took them a lot. And so that was boom. Okay. So that's how I first got introduced a year or so later, you know, King Tim, uh, King Tim, Fatback Band, King Tim three, uh, and Sugar Hill Gang, Rappers Light come out and you know, everyone, you know, whether you were eight or 18 or 80, everyone was, was rhyming Sugar Hill. It was on the radio. Non-stop. I said a hip hop, the hip it, the hip it, did a hip hip hop, and you don't stop the rocket to the bang bang boogie. Say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie to be. Now what you hear is not a test. I'm rapping to the beat, and me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. You see, I am Wonder Mike, and I like to say hello. Up to the black, to the white, the red, uh, and the brown, and, and yellow, <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is okay. roller skating. So then I get a little older roller skating. Okay. So then I'm rhyming my little Starvin Marvin rhymes uh, in high school, <laughs> junior high school, seventh grade, eighth grade. And I just, honestly, the seeds were planted by those, those cab rides and everything, the routines and trying to be funny. Um, first time I tried to get on, uh, it's a very long story, but in short, there's this guy, Tony Lopez, who uh, was a, he sold cars at Dickie Drunk Cadillac on Fordham Road in the Bronx. He was a basketball coach for uh, my man, Johnny. Uh, his team and Johnny hooked me up with him and Tony Lopez liked my rhymes. He's like, come down and dig a drug Cadillac. You're gonna run for the fat boys. This is like, I was like 14 years old. Right. It's like mid eighties, 85 or something. He's like, oh. And uh, so I go down there with two, two kids are rhymed within my school and um, got to run for uh, Prince Marky D rest in peace. And, uh, and Kurok Ski um, and nothing happened from it, but it was cool. It was like, okay, these people are real. And this is when the fat boys were like, really really on top it was like run dmc Curtis blow and fat boys one yeah. two three you know 84 85 i guess it was like 84 85 maybe early six um before rock ham for sure mm. um because i remember when rock ham came out i remember when you know eric b for president came out and that's when hip-hop to me it became the modern age of of hip-hop some people call it the golden age but because i went back long enough right. i loved it so much i was like okay that's really where okay rock ham and KRS and South Bronx and bridges over and everything. So right. I started DJing as a 15 year old, 16 year old uh, up in Westchester, you know, moved from Mount Vernon up to Greenberg and went to Woodlands High School. And uh, um, yeah, just, you know, my, my high school was really, really big in music. Uh, Atlantic Star had gone to my high school. Mm. And after they graduated and became famous, they would come back and give performances. Uh, and so it was like at our high school for free, like, okay, so we don't have six, seven, eight period instead. <laughs> Atlantic Star is giving us a concert. And it was like, whoa, it was so much fun. 
Um, <laughs> uh, Cab Calloway used to come to our middle school uh, uh, in White Plains at Bailey, RJ Bailey. So, so our whole school system was uh, really rooted in music and the arts, and that gave me a lot of confidence to, to pursue this. I uh, linked up with some kids right as I was graduating, um, and they were kind of in a hardcore band, uh, but they also loved hip hop, and they were also in the jazz band in our high school. Mm. So there were five kids, one of them kind of rhymed a little bit, and then there was me. And so we're like, okay, I'm going away to college, but um, we're going we're gonna to link up after the end of my first year, whatever, stay in touch. And so the six of us became Justice System. Um, freshman year at college, I interned for the Source Magazine. It was, uh, they were still at, at Harvard. I was going to Tufts University, not far away. And um, so the last semester for them when they were seniors, for uh, Dave Mays and John Schechter, I was a uh, second semester of my freshman year at Tufts. So wow. I interned for them and um, that's when they had their first magazine cover. I got to meet Chuck D. He gave a speech mm. at, uh, at Harvard. I was calling radio DJs around the country, getting these, they used to have these, in the old days of the source, they'd have these playlists, you know, top 10. And I'd call all these DJs. I got to call Red Alert. Uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> growing up in New York, you know, the cool the DJ, Bronx, you know, it's like the Red Alert, y'all. <laughs> Red Alert. I mean, you know, Friday nights for Chuck Chill Out, 98.7. And, and Saturday nights were Red Alert, uh, Prince Messiah, rest in peace, and uh, both on, all on 98.7 KISS FM. It was the whole KISS FM, BLS thing, if you know radio in New York yeah. back in the day. Two stations that would only play hip-hop at night on the weekends. Um, and then if you stayed up really late, you could listen to Silver Surfer, Hank Love, DNA, and some other jocks around uh, the, the tri-state area. Can you imagine and, um, that? Like, I was just ahead. A time that they only played hip-hop at night. <laughs> you know? You know, or like, remember when they used to actually take the rap verse out of songs? Like when there was like a rapper featured mm -hmm. in songs where they would like, the radio edit wouldn't have the rapper on the song? As if it never happened. You know, it was, it was, and, and the thing was, like, listen, um, racism, you know, was massive in, in all, for, and still is obviously all pervasive in culture in America, whatever. So there was that going on. And, but there was also this thing about hip hop being dirty and grimy and like, you know, oh, that's just so, that's so raw and uh, unevolved. And, you know, we, you know, we don't have that here, you know, there was, <laughs> so, so summer 1990, I started going to the clubs, you know, and, and we used to make fun. There was some dudes, the R&B cats who want to go to Bentley's, right? We're going to Bentley's, you know, and Bentley's oh, was like man, Bentley's r and right? Okay. <laughs> You know, that was like, that was for people who like, I'm going to wear a suit. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to dress up really fancy. Remember, I was raised by my pops. Um, my pops had a really funny, weird dressing style, which meant like <laughs> whatever. And, and I just, you know, for me, it was always a fresh pair of kicks and a hat and I'm straight. And so I wasn't trying to put on a suit, uh, whether I, you know, I didn't have the money, but even if I did, I was like, I'm not really, that's, I'm not trying to look shiny. I just want to, if I'm going out to hear music or clubs, I want to, I want to dance. I want to feel the music. I want Tunnel to like, feel comfortable, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, so jumping off. Okay. So hip hop me, I'm going fast. I'm covering a lot of stuff here. Hopefully. Uh, so go to the source source hooks me up that summer. They moved down to New York city. I think their first offices were on Broadway. I worked maybe one or two days there, um, but I had to have a job job, make some real money that summer. So I'm doing other stuff, but they hooked me up and would get me into free at all these shows. So I'm at Quando's prop room where, uh, BDP records live hip hop worldwide, the first live hip hop um, album, really, mm. summer 1990. And uh, I think it was like May 1990. And who do I start hanging out with there? But Fife from A Tribe Called Quest. Wow. And 
and at the source, uh, we had gotten an advanced uh, copy from Jive Records, Jive Records of uh, the first Tribe album, People's Instinctive Travels and the Paths of Rhythm. And it blew the whole office away. We're like, whoa, this is just, this is so thoughtful. It's so composed in a, in a good way, this blending of samples. And as a DJ, me, like what Tip and Ali were doing uh, production-wise was just mind-blowing. It's like taking, because I had some of those records. Most of them I didn't, but I had a couple of those records. And I'm like, oh, they took that and they mixed it with this and they mixed it with that. You know, Marley, Marley Marl in terms of hip-hop production. Okay, I'm going to fall down a rabbit hole here. I probably want to edit this, but you know, Marley... <laughs> was the master sampler, right? Marley was like, okay, but I'm gonna take the, I'm gonna take the kick and I'm gonna take the snare. I'm gonna take a little horn thing. I'm gonna put some effects on it. You know, you go back to the bridge, one of the most iconic, important records in all of music, forget just hip hop, right? Because what he did with that in terms of taking the impeach the president drums and figuring out how he could just take the kick and the snare and then reprogram the beat the way he wanted it. And that just changed everything, right? And then he went on to do Eric B for president, also produced by Marley Marl. Right. Um, and same thing. He's like, I'm gonna take these, you know, these certain drums sounds, but I'm gonna program it my way, throwing a little bit of stuff over here, boom, boom. Well, tip, what tip and Ali were doing, they're taking loops, you know. So like if I'm a DJ, right, and if I got four bars or eight bars of something off of a, a George Benson record or off of um, a Sly Stone record or off of a Stevie Wonder record or off of um, you know, whatever, Curtis Mayfield or something. Um I would, I would look for those moments and I'd play those at parties and I saw how people reacted to it. And that's what hip hop really was. It was like, let's find those four bars and eight bars and loop yeah. it back and forth back in the seventies and eighties originally with turntables, right? Before there were samplers, before there were sequencers. That's, that's how hip hop was born in the Bronx and, and, and in New York and then spread out. And, and so what Tip did was to take that kind of loop philosophy, okay? From the original DJs, like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play this back and spin this back, spin this back, you know? Um, beat juggling and whatever, and um, rocking doubles, whatever, but then layer it like with another loop and another loop and have all three or four of those at the same time going, it just blew my mind. And mm. so I was, I was so excited to, to, to meet those cats. Um, and, and that's what happened at, at, at this club. So um, at the time, Red Alert had a company called Red Alert Productions. In addition to DJing, he was also a producer slash management. He was more like he was more hands-off, right? He was more like, let these people, like the Jungle Brothers, Tribe Called Quest, BDP, Ultra Magnetic, Queen Latifah. He's like, a lot of these cats have some, you know, their own producers in the crews. I don't really need to produce them. I can maybe executive produce them, which is what he did for a lot of those records, mm. or just help them here or there, or just, you know, be someone they could bounce ideas off of, talk to in terms of a collective. And so from that, you get native tongues born out of that. Right. You get people getting signed, getting on, getting radio play. And of course, Red was playing these records, and it just happened to be these were some of the best records in the world at that time, any genre, you know. And uh, and so getting to meet Fife, you know, we, there was all this downtime at these shows. Like we knew like uh, Karis would be recording the thing live for videotape and for an album. So you're hanging. So you were there, like you were you were at that recording. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, at, at Quando's. Yeah, at this club. Yeah, uh, Red called it proper room. Uh, this woman, Amanda. Uh, she had these car wash parties. Um, she was kind of put in on with Red. And uh, it was a, Quando's, I think it was like 2nd Avenue and 2nd Street. It was an old abandoned school uh, with like big gymnasiums. That's where like Red Alert would be up on stage DJing or Karis would perform. And then upstairs, there was an outdoor, I guess, recess area. So it was like almost caged, like a 14 foot wire, <laughs> steel wire cage on the, on the roof of the building. So can you imagine summertime, 1990, you know, you're chilling at a club and you get to go outside up top. Um, it was just incredible. 
And like and, to paint uh, the picture for you guys just a little bit, these are like some of the biggest acts in hip hop at this time. And this is how they have to perform. Like when you think about where the, the stage that hip hop is on today and where it mm. came from, it's just, it's, it's really amazing. Oh, I mean, this was like weird abandoned buildings practically, you know, even at that time, some of these spots. And uh, it, it, it was, yeah, it was, it was rugged. It was funny though, <laughs> taking it back to pops. So I get there the first time and I'm online to go in, but I was on the guest list, right? So I get to go up and there was this cat. I can't remember his name. I remember what he looked like. Um, tall, skinny, black dude, sort of um, a sort of graying blowout. He looked about my dad's age and I just show my ID. So I'm driving, he's like, John Dawson. He's like, John Dawson said, where's the post office? Sanford Boulevard, remember? I was like, yeah, he's like, I work with John. I work with your pops. And I'm like, what? Pops knew everybody. It's crazy. And so Sammy, his name was Sammy, excuse me. It just came back to me, Sammy. And so it was just, it was like, my pops had these guardian angels out, you know, and, and looking out for me without like looking out, you know. And honestly, it was an incredibly safe atmosphere there. Um, mm. uh, uh, and it was cool. how long actually one time how long oh i'm sorry sorry go ahead oh, i'm sorry no i was gonna no, say one time a, a fight almost say... broke out one time a fight almost broke out and red alert stopped it from he turned the music off he's like listen he's like no 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 no. like he's like this is not gonna happen in my house like red alert had so much respect like fights would be popping off in parties and clubs in new york all the time probably has you know i mean all the time back then yeah and red was like it's not yeah. happening here and red had so much respect you know he he was so important to the culture to the music to the movement what was going on between self-destruction, native tongues, you know, Kiss FM, what he was doing, reggae, bringing on dance hall reggae, giving that, it's, you know, a, a nice platform as well, that they stopped the fight. That's how much respect wow. he had. That's that's the power of hip hop culture right there. That everyone's like, okay, we're not gonna fight. Cool, we'll take it outside of where it's gonna happen, but not in his place. It was a beautiful mm. time. That That's real. Yo, just want to take a sec to give a big shout to my people at Wide Roots Imports. The role of a good wine importer is to tell the story of the land that the wines are from. Wide Roots does that in a very judgment-free way. They're an educational resource for people that are new to wine, and if I'm rocking with them, you know they keep some fire on deck. Right now, bringing in wines from Spain and Italy. For more info, go to WideRootsLLC.com now. How long were you rapping before you guys ended up getting signed? I guess, I mean, since I was, I don't know, 11. So um, we turned down some deals. Um, I'll fast forward a little bit. So the group, we start playing out, start start recording at Power Play Studios and in Long Island City, LIC. We see, um, we get to meet Large Professor, Main Source there. They're recording one mm. time. Feral Monge, Organized Confusions recording there one time. We're there. Um, and we're like, oh my God, this is great. And, you know, KRS had recorded their BDP, EPMD, all these cats, LL. So, and Eric B and Rakim, perhaps most famously, uh, recorded a lot of the second album and the third album there. I think all the third album, most of the second album. Mm. So we were like in this temple and we were getting on, our demos were circulating, got to meet Dante Ross, the famous A&R cat when he was at Electra. Um, these cats from Rush Management, big uh, uh, management production thing. Uh, they were trying to... Um, hook us up, get help us get deals. So we turned down deals by the time I was 20, 21. We turned down a deal with RCA. They wanted wow. to put us on the 90210 soundtrack. And we're like, 90210 soundtrack? We're like, what? <laughs> like, you, look at us. I mean, we're like, we're like, you know, we're, we're, we're like making um, different music. Now, but mind you, one thing I did say is my crew, Justice System at the time, um, we were a live hip hop band, right? This is before The Roots. 
Um, Stetsasonic mm-hmm. had done a little bit, but you never saw the band really in the videos. And like we were writing real, real music with like movements and choruses and bridges and everything. And that, so that's what, how we, again, being original, like Karis One got out of style, learned to be original. That's how we were being original, doing our own thing. I DJ too, and I'd scratch. We throw a little bit of beats and samples here from time to time, but we were doing our thing. So this whole 90210 soundtrack thing, we're like, nah, that's not for us. So I guess I've been rhyming, I don't know, seven, seriously for seven years by the time we got our first offer, um, turn that down. And then we get signed in 93. But the big thing that went on between the first offer and when we got signed was uh, linking up with the Zulu Nation, uh, Ahmed Henderson, Mohammed Islam, Africa Bambada, and all those cats in Bronx River. So I was, I was actually, I was actually going to ask you about that next. Like, how did you end up hooking up with the Zulu Nation? And for you guys to <laughs> to put this in perspective a little bit, this guy is a wine lawyer now, but was a, <laughs> back in the day a member of the Zulu Nation. So how do you make that transition from Zulu to <laughs> to the wine game? Okay. Um, honestly, uh, at the end of the day, it's it's a, what I said earlier. It's a, you know having that sense of purpose in life and that purpose and trying to be original and be true to yourself. And so, honestly, it's not that different. It's all one the same. And Zulu Nation, you know, they're all about you know peace, love, unity, and having fun. All about music. All about hip hop as a culture. It was this full, comprehensive, you know, um, philosophy and uh, and and comprehensive way of living in a way that really resonated with me and the other guys in justice system. And, you know, growing up, you know, Mount Vernon and, and Hartsell, Greenberg and everything, going down to Bronx River was not that far, not far away. And um, we'd been hanging out in the Bronx anyway for a while here and there. And so that was fine. Transitioning long-term to a lawyer was, again, it's like to be a wine lawyer, I'd start off being a lawyer uh, in the late nineties. Um, and I was with a big corporate international law firm, one of the biggest in the world. And I was on the partnership track there, but uh, I didn't want to do that as a, a long-term life commitment. I was like, you know, I, I'm not having fun. Most of the time, I'm not having fun. I want to do something that I can take my law degree, take my background passions, whether it was music or wine, and do something with it. And um, in fact, I went to law school to do entertainment law, to work for artists and musicians. Um, but that was when Napster and file sharing was starting to really uh, eat the profits of the industry and, um, and change the game. So I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to pivot to being an intellectual property lawyer, wine lawyer, in terms of helping wineries get the trademarks, helping wine wineries get off the ground, you know, get started, corporate formation, and um, you know, so. Uh, it, but 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 the philosophy was, you know, from the Zulus, you know, having fun. Like you have to do something <laughs> with purpose, meaning, and have fun. That's the and wine is incredibly fun for me. Mm. Can you um, so for people that aren't familiar with old New York in the Zulu nation. Like this, if you guys want to picture something, picture the movie Warriors. <laughs> this is this is what this is what the NY that, that he's describing looks like right now. And that's the era that they're talking about though. So it's for me it's just cool to hear about this stuff so up close because I, I was just a kid, you know, hearing stories and passing and stuff. So how did you end up connecting with Zulu? Right. So um, I was a history major in college. Right. And so for me, I loved hip hop and I knew a lot about it. You know, I knew a lot of cats and I was playing our shows, doing our thing, whatever, meeting a lot of people. It was cool. But I wanted I, as much as I used to go to Beach Street Records in the Bronx and, you know, Fordham Road and I used to buy my sneakers most of the time and 
and other gear on Fordham Road. Um, you know, I wasn't, you know, pops would take me there. We go to the Yankee Stadium, the Bronx, go to games and walk around effort. I hadn't really met any of the pioneers. I hadn't met Bam. I hadn't met Ahmed. I hadn't met Muhammad Islam. I hadn't met Flash or um, Jazzy J. Big up to Jazzy J. And so I did some research. I was fascinated. I want to know the culture, like really know the culture. This is before meeting them. And I wrote this song based on it called Dedication of Bambada. And it was really a dedication to Zulu Nation. And, and my dad had knew, Pops knew a little bit about this too, how there was a group, a gang called the Black Spades in the Bronx. And, um, you know, South Bronx, Southwest Bronx. And, uh, and Bam was the head of the Black Spades, right? Bambada. And um, back then, honestly, the gang situation, it's not like Crips and Bloods today. Um, it was really survivalist, like for real. Like the entire New York City infrastructure did not serve the people of the Bronx, did not serve most of the inner city communities of, of the five boroughs, truth be told. Um, and so you had decrepit, train stations, falling apart buildings, buildings on fire all the time, you know, police, fire department, get in there two hours late, three hours late. Meanwhile, the burning building is now in ruins. Mean, meanwhile, the people are now homeless. Meanwhile, people are dead and no one's getting there. Meanwhile, people could have been saved if the ambulances would get there sooner, you know, they've passed. It was, it was a foul time. No one was there looking out for people. So you had to look out for your own, okay? And so Black Spades was kind of born out of Bronx River housing projects. Um, Right there by the Bronx River Parkway, and uh, Bruckner runs right close to that too. And um, so, Bam turns out he's like, listen, this gang stuff, you know, black spades against savage skulls, things other gangs. It really was like the words. That movie was based in fact. Yeah. In <laughs> it really was. It was a messed up time. And Bam's like, you know, enough. We're killing each other. We're killing good people. You know, blacks and Puerto Ricans, occasionally whites too, but it's mostly blacks and Puerto Ricans. Um, uh, at that time in, in, in New York, uh, and some of the white gangs from wherever, Brooklyn or Queens, whatever, too, that, you know, and Bam's like, enough, we should be one, one, we, you know, we should be one and realize that together we're stronger than we are in these individual units and these individual cliques and gangs. And so he basically called this massive truce and converted the black spades into the Zulu nation in terms of the, the almighty universal Zulu nation and cats from other gangs, they could be part of it. But the, the trick though, okay, if there was a trick, you know, not the trick, but the hook for a lot of people, it wasn't just the philosophy, okay, we're gonna stop fighting each other. It was, we're gonna party together. And by the way, <laughs> we pretty much have the best DJs in the five boroughs as part of the Black Space and the Zulu Nation. And so you're talking Bambada, Jazzy J, Red Alert. Um, those were like your one, two, and three DJs. I mean, you had Flash and he was from the Bronx too, and he was incredible. And you had, you know, DJ Pete, you had some DJs from Queens and Brooklyn as well. but because of the sound systems that they had, you know, Kuhark of, of you know, Herculords, you know, yeah. he was incredible too. Um, the, the cats were like, yo, this is undeniably cool. And honestly, that's where hip hop was born. You know, Herc, August 73, his party, and right around the time the Zulu Nation is formed. I mean, this happens yeah. for a reason. This is a synchronicity in the world to make a contribution in terms of evolved state of humanity, starting from a place where they had nothing, you know, or very little, I should say. Uh, in terms of and in terms of government support, in terms of you know over, over overall society support, and creating something original that was born of their existence and resonated in a fun, incredible, inspiring way. And so I remembered, you know, that those old parties. I hear those tapes. I'm like, yo, this is. I do my I do my research. I talk to people, start interviewing cats, find out all these old clubs, who's doing what, the Hevelo, um, you know, all these on Jerome Ave. 
all these other mm-hmm. spots. The fever I'd already knew about, but got to know more about that and other spots. And so I wrote the song about it. Muhammad Islam, uh, one of the founders of the Zoo Nation, um, he gets a copyright demo tape because uh, one of the guys in my crew was dating a girl who was friends with the girl that Muhammad was seeing. And uh, Muhammad's like, yo, I got to meet these guys. I want them to meet Bam, bring down the Bronx River, meet Ahmed. So we're like, Bam. And <laughs> we hooked up. Ahmed Henderson became our manager. Uh, he was part of the uh, Soul Sonic Force. He was Shango in the Soul Sonic Force. And they just embraced us. Um, we started going to Bronx River a lot, talking to Bam, talking to Ahmed, talking to Muhammad Islam. And they just, they took us in like family. And mm. um, it was, we, like, you know, we get to record at Jazzy J's studio for free. I and mean, we'd have to bring wow. the, um, the engineer rocket, <laughs> a six pack of elephant beer. Uh, <laughs> you know, and then through the first time I met Diamond D was at Jazzy J's studio up on Allerton Avenue in the Bronx. Diamond was coming by to see if Jay was there. Diamond had just gotten his gold plaque for um, Travel Quest Low End Theory. Mm. And uh, he wanted to show it to Jay. It was like, you know, for that crew, no one had had a gold plaque, I think, since, since BAM. And uh, it, was, it was pretty incredible, Diamond's early production, you know, and uh, we got to meet him. And then I think two years later, three years later, he ends up remixing one of our songs, Dedication to Bambada. That one from that same demo tape that wow. when we got signed to MCA in 93, came out in 94, he ends up doing one of the remixes for it. And we're all laughing and bugging out. And he's like, yo, I can't believe you were rhyming about the Havilo. I can't believe you were <laughs> that club on Jerome Ave. Nobody knows about that club, you know? And, and mm. uh, I was like, so it was a lot of love. And um, it was a really, really cool time. That's real, man. I, it's just, it's so surreal to hear you describe this stuff. And um, a lot of people don't think about the fact that Trout Called Quest was down with Zulu as well. Oh, oh man. I mean, they were, you know, in terms of commercial success in the early to mid to late 1990s, out of all the acts that came out of Zulu Nation, it was probably Tribe, Tribe. the most, you know. Um, you know, and uh, and it's funny, you know, up in Bam's crib, uh, you know, the sort of the Zulu offices, really, um, there was one artist on the wall right by the the, the the door to the, to, to the spot there in Bronx River, and it was a picture of a tribe. So at that time, like New York was a, a wild place. Like, what sort of things would you guys have to encounter? Like, people don't really realize just being a rapper coming up in that rap scene is very different. Like, what <laughs> sort of things were you seeing and experiencing that? that really resonated with you because you're still doing music to this day. So what, what about that time kind of grabbed you and, and instilled that connection to you? Yeah. I mean, so, okay. Hip hop, right. We're really talking about wine and hip hop, by the way, I love the name of the, of the podcast. It's not wine and rap. It's wine and hip hop because hip hop is this culture. Right. right. And which is what the dual nation was all about. It's, 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 we're a culture. I would go down the, to Bronx river during the day sometime for, for lessons of the dual nation. And, um, uh, so what re- impacted me, those things that were going on again, the sense of culture, the sense of meaning purpose, um, and, uh, the sense of the importance of unity and the importance, if you're going to be an artist, if you're going to be an MC, if you're going to be a DJ, you better hone your skills. Right. Don't just get up there and, and, and just think you're just gonna get on the mic and rock a party. Even if you're in the Zulu nation, even if you're an artist associated with them, they took care of us. I mean, they really took care of us. I mean, I, I'm so incredibly thankful to, to Ahmed to Muhammad Islam, to, uh, to Bam, to everybody. Uh, B.O., rest in peace, T.C. Islam, rest in peace, all those cats. Um, they looked out in a major way. But like we had to MC, And so <laughs> there would be a talent show. This guy, Prince IKC, was hosting it. I remember this. And we're thinking like, okay, 
you know, our crew, you know, our manager is, is putting this on and the Zoom Nation is putting this on. Like, we're probably going to win first, second or third place. So we're going to win some sort of trophy. And we were good. We were confident. We were a little cocky. But we were playing a lot of, we were playing a lot of clubs in New York at the time and outside as well. And we were, we were like, we were smashing it. I mean, we were just, we were like, uh, we would come off the stage and people were like, yo, you crushed it. You know, just like, whoa, <laughs> you, blew, you blew everyone away. Because, you know, we're rhyming, I'm DJing. And we've got a band, you know, live horn, live saxophone, live Rhodes, you know, guitar, bass. I mean, the sound coming from the stage was like, boom. But MCing is MCing. And this is a hip hop party. This is yep. like a lot of kids from the Bronx would come down. To the you got to move the, the crowd. Exactly. That's what MCing is all about. And so we're in the green room chilling beforehand. I'm talking to Prince Messiah, you know, Red Alert's uh, um, partner on that show, on, on, the, on the Red Alert show. And in comes Lord Finesse. And he's with his other cat, his younger cat. And, you know, for where we were from, you know, what we were doing in the Bronx, I mean, Lord Finesse was a legend, one of the greatest wordsmiths, one of the greatest MC punchline artists. Before Eminem, there was Finesse, right? And uh, for a lot of cats, there was Lord Finesse. Well, Finesse comes in and we're like, cool, but there's this other dude, younger cat. And we, we, we shake hands. We're like, what's up? And he's like, yo, this is my man, Big L. And we'd never heard of Big L before, <laughs> right? Uh, we're like, what's up? He's not smiling. Big L is not smiling. And... And I immediately took, looked at Tom Folex from, from Justice System and, and our other crew, uh, QFC. And I'm, and I'm like, yo, I just give him this look like, oh shit, we, we going against, this, this, this is an MC. We're going against a real one tonight. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, so I remember like, we didn't know what it was going to be, but like, okay. And he goes on before us and there were some other acts first and they were like, okay. And they're fun. Whatever. It was a great party, a fun time. And then big old goes on, goes straight up front and center by himself. Somebody, either, there was no real DJ that you could see. So either he was playing over a record in the back that someone's spinning, or he had a dad doing the, playing the instrumental. But he just started emceeing. He didn't even need music. His wow. stage presence, just all in black, black, long black coat, uh, black, you know, um, wool cap on. It was cold. It's kind of wintertime. Um, and he just destroyed the microphone. And everyone, no one had heard of him before then. He got signed to Columbia based on that show that night. Wow. There were people in the, in the audience for various record labels. He got signed that night. We see him perform like, yo, we're going to have to change up our show a little bit before we <laughs> like, yo, and bring it. He won first place. We won second. And the rest is history. Yo, second place behind Big L says a lot, man. Second place. You know, uh, so when did you um, when did you guys go from Justice League to QFC? Justice System. From, when we went from I'm Justice sorry. System. Justice. Si sorry. When did yeah. you guys go from Justice System to QFC? Really, the past two years. Um, so I become a wine lawyer. Um, All right, sorry to interrupt, but Jermaine, you've got the you've got the new what is it? The new cut, the Snyder cut, Justin <laughs> Justice League Snyder cut in your mind. You no. All right, man. Sorry, guys. I just right, right. I didn't fall asleep. I'm listening. Yeah. yeah. All right, I, I'm, so, I'm, um, I'm out. So all right. Let me just I'm gonna be, let me do a brief wine law segue if I can oh, before I get to sure. UFC. Let's absolutely, absolutely. Okay. So um, all right, so with Zulu Nation, they embrace us. We're down with them for a number of years. We decided at a certain point, because the the deal, the offers weren't, for whatever reason, they dried up for a minute. Um, the recording, and I was graduating from college. Other cats were, you know, uh, wanting to get signed. We, you know, we'd been, having turned down at least two major label deals, we were like, okay, now's, now's time. So we linked up with a, a different manager and uh, we get signed to MCA Universal, um, big, big touring budget, big recording budget, um, come out with the first album, do the remixes with Diamond, um, tour with the Fugees, Wyclef and Lauren around the country, like 28 cities, tour with Public Enemy, do all that. Um, but 
there's just we're not making enough money for me to uh because six dudes in a band road manager 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 business manager lawyer and our lawyers i mean these were like cream of the industry the cats we were working with mm. so i go to law school for entertainment law switch to wine law switch to intellectual property wine law start coming out working harvest here in 2000 and even though justice system we stayed together we all started having our day jobs you know and and mine was a lawyer other cats were in other industries and uh someone one of the guys became a teacher one guy became an engineer and uh you know we make albums we do some stuff on some japanese labels on uh bbe records have a single come out on bbe shout out to peter darkwa on that uh in 2002 we start having families so the albums start coming out with less frequency the singles come out with less frequency meanwhile i'm out here when the sonoma coast pinot noir revolution is happening i'm working harvest two weeks here in 2000, week and a half, two weeks here in 2002, 2003, moved out here in 2005 to California, decided to really go out all out the wine lawyer thing. I'm doing that. Okay, cool. A couple years later, do the next uh, Justice System album. It's been a long time. But by that point in time, the, the passion to want to dig for records and samples had come back so strong for me. My, my kids were no longer babies, you know, uh, other people, you know, marriage was, was great. My career was great. Uh, set up as a partner here at this law firm, CMPR Law, out here, representing hundreds of wineries, hundreds of wineries around the world. And uh, I'm like, okay, I can really dive back headfirst into music again. I'm set up. I got my platform. And so I talked to um, one of my partners, uh, Folex, from Justice System. I'm like, yo, listen, I know most of the other guys in the group, they can't devote the same kind of time you and I can. Tom lives in Miami now. He runs a, a, an incredible recording studio down there. DMX, who just recently passed, uh, had recorded in his studio three weeks before he passed. Uh, down in Miami. R.I.P. DMX. Uh, R.I.P. DMX, exactly. Uh, another 914 you know, inspiration for us. Um, Westchester, New York, for those who don't know, uh, area code 914. So um, so Tom Folex from Justice, he's like, yeah, let's let's do our own thing. He's like, I got my studio. So we start making, you know, and I've got all this time now with COVID hits, the pandemic hits. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had a little recording set up in my crib and uh, I just, you know, took the time to build it out a little bit more. Tom had a, you know, he's a multi-million dollar studio in Miami that he runs and works in and and uh, and helps out at a lot in other ways. He was like, yo, you record on your stuff. I'll mix it here on my million dollar mixer and all this, you know, and, and uh, boards. Put the and bells and whistles boards. on it. <laughs> and and then we had this, this cat, Jason Famous Beats, this cat we've been working with through Justice System for a while. He's an incredible producer from Philly uh, who'd grown up near us, knew us. He was one of those cats who was younger than us, but was looking up to us when we were kids. Uh, for what we're doing early in justice system. He wanted to be down and we liked his music. We actually, we wanted him to be part of it. He, anything we wanted to do, he wanted to be a part of. So the three of us, me, Folex and Jason Famous Beats start up QFC, Quantum Field Crew as like an offshoot from justice system. Um, and it's not as much live music, but it's, it's um, more rooted in sort of foundational spiritual beliefs, you know, having fun being one of them. Um, but in terms of a lot of the, the stuff that the Zulu Nation was about, um, a lot of the values that were instilled at that time to us in terms of um, looking out for people, uh, helping, teaching people what you know, understanding that knowledge is infinite and sharing what you know with other people uh, to help them move on and caring about other people, looking out for other people, donating to other people in need and, and loving everyone as, uh, as, as one people on this planet at this day and time. So those values uh, are really um, what QFC was about. And we could do it in a way that you know, Tom and I were, were both MCs and producers and uh, songwriters. And so it was like, it wasn't an, an affront to justice system for us to kind of 
uh, manifest in this kind of a creative expression. Very different. Um, when my law firm hears it, I think some of them, some of the music they'll be like, "This is incredible," and some of them are like, "That's really way above our, I don't know, you know, above, above our understanding." But that's okay. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. Now, I mean, I, I think that once you got that itch, it's just you know, some people are just born to continue to create. Uh, how how do you at this point? How do you tap into your creativity? Like, at what point? in your day do you transition and say all right i'm gonna focus on music now i'm gonna focus on law and other times like how do you how do you split your time so uh we bought a during right just before the covid pandemic hit we went into contract my, my wife and i to buy a much bigger house uh a little bit closer to the the coast here in sonoma um in a place called freestone and um so i have be able to you know, build a really amazing studio set up there and fit more of my vinyl. Um, so in the morning, but if it's further from my office, right, it's like another 10, 15 minutes from my office. So it's, it's only a half hour door to door in my car. So in the morning, I put on some music while I'm driving. And if I start vibing something, I might freestyle something, I'll come up with an idea for a song. So when I get to my garage, my parking garage here at the office, sometimes I'll just keep the, the music going. It's like an instrumental. I'll take out my iPhone and start recording voice memos of me, just whatever's coming to me, right? In terms of whatever, chorus, an idea, a verse, a couple of lines, a couple of words. When I get home that night after work, depending how long a day it is, because sometimes as a lawyer, the, the days are long. Um, if I'm not too tired, you know, usually by 10 o'clock, 9, 30, 10, I'll go straight to the um, computer, start looping stuff up, hooking stuff up, and I'll, you know, build on that. And usually if it's a really good idea, it's like, I can't stop thinking about it, you know? Yeah, and some nights I'm up until two in the morning and, and, and fall down a rabbit hole, but it's really constructive. It's fun. And, um, you know, those are moments of creative uh, insight that I know having done this now for 30 years at a really serious level, like you have to, you have to seize those moments um, when they happen. Right. What, you know, is interesting because you totally, you don't, have to do this you're not doing this because it's like yo look i'm trying to make it out of the hood uh you know i'm just trying like what are what are you trying what do you want to communicate like what are your intentions when you're releasing new music yeah yeah well especially with qfc you know uh quantum field crew what we're, we're really talking about here our, our intentions are to help raise the consciousness and sense of awareness of everyone on this planet that we can reach Mm. Uh, for everyone to understand that we are all one. We're all one people. And so many divisive elements in society today try to tell us otherwise. They try to say, oh, you're Republican versus Democrat. You're poor versus rich. You're black versus white. You're you know, Christian versus Muslim. And, and, and that's all divisive tactics meant to, meant to take away from the power of humanity. I, we believe the power of humanity as a united people, uh, as a loving people who can take care of each other, who, who feel lucky to help take care of each other for those in need. And so that's what we're trying to do. That's the message we're trying to um, get across with the new QFC album. And um, I know it's, it's uh, you know, it, it may seem strange that, okay, some wine lawyers do music all the time and he doesn't do what, why he's doing it. But, you know, this is what I really feel. This is what the guys in our group really feel. And, and honestly, the wineries that I work with, you know, which was my day job, most of the, most of my, a good portion of the clients I work with are organic producers. 
um, they, they farm organically or they farm biodynamically, okay? Um, and meaning that they farm with as few chemical inputs as possible. And they make wine with as few chemical synthetic inputs as possible. They want the rawest expression. So when I say to you, if I say to you in the abstract, listen right now, right? Yo, I'm with this producer right now. And this producer is just all about the raw, real moment in time that they're capturing this energy and putting it out there for people. And they just, they want people to just, just feel this, this, this beauty and, and this power and, 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 and appreciate it and blow their minds. When I say, when I describe it that way, I could be talking about a hip hop producer, a music yeah. producer or wine producer, right? <laughs> producers, you think about it. There's a read, there's power in, in words and people don't realize. Um, so a lot of producers, wine producers I work with, um, they have a mindset in terms of a love of life, a love of humanity. Um, a lot of them have an incredible love of music, right? Right now I'm, I'm drinking a Radio Coteau, uh, 2016 La Neblina Pinot Noir and, and the, the founder and winemaker is uh, Eric Sussman of Radio Coteau and music is part of his daily grind. I mean, he just has to have music in his day um, and he's really low key and you won't hear him talking much or interviewing much, but he's farming biodynamically. He's farming organically. He's um, supporting artists. Every open house he has, he has musicians come to play. Other wineries hire me to DJ and want mm. me to come out and when, when, you know, when the whole, we get over the this COVID sort of uh, first step, second steps that we're getting now in, ter in terms of society opening up again, a lot of wineries want, want my band to come out and play with QFC, whatever, me to DJ. And, you know, I've DJed at, at Pax Winery here and Pax Manley is a, a friend mm -hmm. and a client and he's someone else where music is just elemental to him, you know? And, um, and so these values I've seen in hip hop artists and producers in hip hop culture, and I see it in wine culture too. And so, not every client is like that. Not every wine producer is like that. Not every musician is like that or producer is like that. But there's a common element in terms of our humanity and, and making this world a better place and celebrating that togetherness and having fun doing it that, um, that I think unites a lot more people than they realize. Yeah. No, I mean, yo, dude, I got to say, like, right now, <clears throat> you're definitely living the dream because uh, something that I'm going to do at some point, I won't tell anyone when, is record basically a secret album and not let anyone know when it's released. You know, just strip it down for the love, for all the reasons that you just said. Like, sometimes you just got a fire inside you that's burning and you gotta do some shit with it, man. And I just think it's really impressive that you are really doing it on in both fields. You like a like Deion Sanders right now, man. Basketball, <laughs> not probably you doing football, baseball <laughs> in the off season. I don't, I I don't sleep very much. Uh, Folex uh, from QFC and Justice System, he doesn't sleep very much. Um, I've never been a great sleeper. I, my wife sleeps really well. I wish I slept better. Um, so I, I have to I have to manifest this energy in a productive, creative way. Um, you know, and, and honestly, I'm of the belief that you, you put good energy in the universe and it comes back to you. And, um, you know, this music. So last year, uh, we dropped a couple of singles. Year before that, we dropped an album. Yo, um, we're, we were in rotation in like 10 radio stations uh, on the East Coast last year from Miami wow. to Philly to Jersey to uh, New York, uh, up to Canada, upstate New York. Um, in Japan, we're getting all kinds of Spotify plays. And wow. you know, some weeks you know, our plays go up like, you know, in the thousands in Japan. And we're like, what's going on? So we know, you know, it's always fun to see on Twitter when your song comes <laughs> up and you're like, whatever, Justice System, you know, Bronxian Bauxite. 
you know, in rotation <laughs> at whatever station, blah, blah. You're like, it, it, it's fun. You know, it's, I, I won't lie. Like, it's gratifying to see that. And it's kind of fun. Um, but it's, it, it's fun to be true to oneself, right, in this way. Like, this is what I have to do. I could not be an insurance defense lawyer. I could not be a white collar criminal defense lawyer. I just, right. That would not be true to who I am. You know, being a wine lawyer, helping people get trademarks, being really creative with it, working with it, tweaking it here and there, figuring out ways to get around potential obstacles, helping you know good people, good families run family-owned businesses and grow, doing some really cool stuff on international mergers and acquisitions. Uh, I love that. You know that that's true. And doing the music to me, it's the same thing. It, it's true to myself. So for you to talk about doing a record that you're not going to tell anyone about. <laughs> but but you just have it in you and you have to put it out that's being true to to yourself and, and you have to do it and, definitely uh, and then once i know it's you i'm gonna tell everyone that it is you and, and blow your cover and, and, and blow you up <laughs> as you know look I, I i'll let you know when it drops and you know we'll see we'll see what happens um you could have gone a couple of different ways you could have gone into entertainment law um what made you lean into wine law so so I go to law school to be an entertainment lawyer, you know, thinking that I want to still be a part of the music business um, because I loved it and I loved artists to be a part of that, right? Um, and around that time, while I'm in law school, the whole Napster file sharing thing blows up late 90s, you know, and what happens to the record companies, those budgets that I got to have, the $100,000 touring budgets, you know, the big tour buses, everything, that's gone for 80% <laughs> of the people who get those kinds of budgets. The recording budgets, they start to go down. The video budgets, they start to go down. And I see some incredible in-house lawyers that some of these record companies, people I knew, um, I had some internships and I'd gotten some job offers from some places, uh, Island Records, and I interned at Polygram, um, Legal Affairs. And so I was setting myself up that way. But then I saw some of these lawyers in-house get fired and because the industry was such that there was consolidation going on. There wasn't as much money to be made as there had been in the early 90s and the mid 90s. So I'm like, okay. If I try to be an entertainment lawyer, that seems to be kind of uphill. I'm just going to go just a little bit different to intellectual property law, which entertainment, you know, covers a lot of intellectual property law, trademarks and copyrights and First Amendment stuff. You know, those kinds of issues which are, you know, in the entertainment law thing and contracts and acquisitions. I was like, I can do that from an intellectual property lawyer's perspective. Let me try that. So, so I went that way right out of law school. And then... Uh, my little 50-person New York City firm got acquired by a thousand-lawyer international law firm, and I'm like, okay, let me see if this still stays the same. And um, I was like, oh, not so sure. Meanwhile, the music career, in terms of us actually recording and stuff and making records, that gets kind of put to the side. But then I got started doing this, this stuff with this bigger law firm, and they're having me do some insurance defense work from time to time and some other stuff. I was like, you know, I'm not really sure if I, I really feel great about you know working with some of these companies associated with this stuff and you know i've got to be true to myself i'm like ah you know what do i really love and i had just started um taking some of this you know, vacation time and going out to california working harvest for some people and to learn about the wine industry from that angle i'd already worked retail during law school for a minute in, in manhattan and uh uh at a wine store and so i was like i'm learning the industry and i learned that and i was like whoa there's not many wine lawyers out here. Like, whoa, <laughs> you show up to Napa, Sonoma, you show up back in 2000, sober, cogent, and on time, you're so far ahead of the game, forget <laughs> about it, you know? And, you know, and it was kind of like the music business in a way. I was like, oh, I know what this is about. Okay, bet, you know, <laughs> like, okay, bet. I, I know how to do this, I know how to do this. So, um, and back then in the wine industry, a lot of the deals were done by handshakes. Now for 30 years, 40 years in the American wine industry, 
handshake deals, people, you know, their word was their bond. And coming up in New York from the Zoo Nation, you know, you hear that word is bond, word is bond. Like your word is your bond. And, and you learn, you know, in the Zulu Nation, you learn what that really means. Okay. And, and, and other people in New York, you really know what that means. It's like, no, if you say something, you mean yeah, something. Yeah, do it. And you have a commitment there. And, and these, these producers, these winery producers in Napa and Sonoma, a lot of these old school cats, they really, their word was their bond. Well, for 30 years, 40 years, that worked. By 2000, some funny money moves in, some new money moves in, and people's word was no longer their bond. They needed the written contract. So for me, it's like, okay, I could stay at this big international law firm. I'm on the partnership track there. I'm making you know, a great salary at that point in my early 30s or whatever. Um, but I wasn't really happy. I, I didn't think I would be happy long-term. I was like, but if I became a wine lawyer, if I pivot that way and working with these people and I get to do intellectual property work and contracts and trademark and other things, I'm like, that's something I can be a part of and get behind. You know what I'm saying? So that's how that transition happened from just being an entertainment lawyer on that path to intellectual property lawyer to being a wine lawyer. Mm. So as a wine lawyer, how much do you get to interact with wine? Like for me, you know, my background was in uh, auction and logistics. And now here I am, you know, selling wine, doing wine media. I don't get to play with wine anymore. You know, um, so sometimes I miss that part of, of what I'm doing. And so just for people to get a, a picture of what a wine lawyer does, uh, how much interaction do you get to have with wine and, and what settings? A hundred percent, as much as I want. Um, you know, uh, I, I have had meetings in the middle of vineyards where I bring someone a contract to go over the contract and sign it. Um, uh, I've had meetings just a couple months ago in vineyards where there's easement issues, things going on like that. Um, in terms of branding, I go to wineries sometimes. We go over what trademarks they have registered, which trademarks they don't even realize they have. You know, and I look at the new labels, new packaging. I'm like, you know, have you thought about trademarking this or this or this? So if I wanted 100% of the time, I could be out at wineries working there. And, you know, invariably, you know, someone's opening a bottle here and there if I want it. In fact, um, truth be told, I, I try to push that to the to nighttime and the weekends, right. the, the consumption, and not during the day because there's a lot to do. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a lot of work to be done, and I want to be you know 100% focused on that. And you know, for me, when I when I drink wine, I want to kick back, take my shoes off, and just really enjoy the moment. You know, and so yeah. I'm good that way, of, uh, basically compartmentalizing the consumption versus the the, the working with it, working with the wineries, dealing with the issues, so on and so forth. Mm, damn, man. Yo, John, I'm telling you, man, you you have... Uh, sorry, sorry. Trip. EP here. This could be like a Saturday Night Live skit. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be a... <laughs> mean to be. Last thing. No, this is great. John, you have no idea, honestly. And, and Jermaine will tell you, like, this is the only time I've ever been a pain in the ass. No, that's not true. Well, I'm sorry. I, I, feel like, I feel He's like, that's not true. No, I'm a pain in the ass. I feel like I'm kind of corny half the time, so... No, there's just so much here because this is really, you know, both sides of it. I, I think here, here's the only thing just, hey, Jermaine, just to get to like, because thematically, the episodes, there is some kind of like wine focus. Like a pairing. And usually there's some kind of music focus. I think the music focus is there because of John's history, justice, justice system, QFC, you know, He's like in that and it's active, right? It's not like, hey, what's your album? You did the you did the spirit animal thing. Wait a, wait a second, Jermaine, you don't record that? Come on, man. <laughs> that's, DVD, that's DVD extras, dude. You know what? B-roll, B-roll. It, 
it, it saves some help. <laughs> the editing for this one's going to be fun. <laughs> um, no, so, so, um, oh, man, I feel sorry, man. no, no, <laughs> don't worry. So, John, what, what are you drinking right now? I'm drinking a bottle of a uh, Radio Coteau, uh, La Neblina Pinot Noir 2016, Sonoma Coast. Um, and, uh, I, you know, coming out here and really coming out here in 2000 when I got worked at La Hota Winery and they had a sister label called uh, W.H. Smith Wines, which focused on Pinot. That was my first introduction really on the ground to Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir. And, um, and I tasted it. I fell in love with it. Uh, and then I came back in 2002, the people from La Hota and W.H. Smith, they introduced me to uh, Eric Sussman at Radio Coteau Wines, ended up working crush with him in 02 and in 03, becoming real tight with him. And he became really my first winery client. Um, mm. And we're, we're, we're really, really tight to this day, like family to this day. Dope, dope. I'm glad you came on repping the hood, <laughs> repping well, Sonoma. I, yeah, no, no, <laughs> repping the, exactly, um, the new hood. It's uh. It's real cool. I mean, Sonoma Coast, people don't realize that there's more geological diversity here in the Sonoma Coast and Russian River Valley than there is in all of Burgundy. Um, mm. In terms of the uplifted uh, seabed, the uh, decomposed sandstone, the iron elements, uh, which forms what's called Gold Ridge soil here, which is a particular soil type um, where you have well-draining soils that lend themselves to growing Pinot Noir in this area where it's it's a little cloudy, misty, foggy. Fog will blow off some days at like two in the afternoon sometimes. Um, it's not too hot because we've got the coastal influence obviously out here. So there's a, an expression of, of, um, of Pinot Noir and Syrah and Chardonnay in particular out here uh, on the Sonoma coast that is, uh, it, it's, really, it's really incredible. And, it, and honestly, as much inspiration came from Burgundy and I love great Burgundy, let me tell you, Michelle Lafarge, rest in peace, you know. Mm. Uh, I got too many Burgundian inspirations to name. Um, uh, you know, it's cool. And it's, you know, hip hop inspired by funk, jazz, soul, all this stuff. But hip hop, it's its own thing, um, endemic of 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 so many incredible things, borrowing from different things, but doing its own thing, its own expression. Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir, it's doing its own thing, its own expression, and that's why that's why I'm drawn to it. It's delicious. It's it's. Um, it, it can be low alcohol, fully phenolically ripe grapes that aren't highly extracted, elegant, balanced, fun, um, mesmerizing and enchanting, you know, similar to Burgundy in some ways, similar to some of the best Barolos I had, that sort of the monosopage, you know, one <laughs> grape kind of expression that captures a moment in time. That's it. Mm. Damn, man. So well put. You definitely put us onto a lot of and you have seen a lot. I'm interested to know, though. So we talked a lot about back in the day. Who are some of the artists of today that you're listening to and, and are currently inspired by? Mm, that's a great question. Um, first and foremost, I would say um, Sophisticated Savage, which is a, a crew of uh, like four cats. Um, DJ Fred Ones, uh, producer, DJ, uh, and, and Rhinoceros Funk, a.k.a. Rhino. Uh, those two cats have a have a show. Gorilla Grooves Radio uh, comes comes out of the Bronx. Timmy Studios. Uh, the, they're kind of uh, foundational uh, members of Sophisticated Savage, as well as Yazid, Yazilla, and uh, MC White Owl. Uh, White Owl, who actually went to the same high school as the Cats from Justice System, QFC. Uh, funny enough. Um, mm. So Sophisticated Savage, they both as a collective and then individually. Um, 
MC White Owl's records are incredible. Rhinoceros Funk's albums are incredible. They got a new Sophisticated Savage one coming out. So them, first and foremost, uh, we did a show with them in Miami just before the COVID pandemic lockdown last year. Uh, so we did a show with them like late January 2020 that was off the hook in Miami. And um, those cats I listen to religiously and I follow them. I encourage people to check them out. Um, who else? Uh, I guess um, this cat, uh, Odd Pilot, um, Jason Famous Beats from from QFC. He does a lot of solo work. He's an incredible producer. Uh, mm. DJ Cut Supreme. He's got a bunch of shows. Uh, the cats have flipped the script radio. Uh, DJ C Reality, Tail, Gray Soaks. Those cats are, you know, just doing incredible things in terms of keeping the culture alive, keeping the music alive on their radio shows. Uh, the artists, you know, Mad Lib, of course, you know, uh, mm. everything he touches is, is gold. Um, I, I still am a huge Wu-Tang fan. Uh, and so, any, anytime anyone's dropping anything, whether it's, you know, whether it's the Jizza or Raekwon or Ghostface or, or Rizza, any of those cats, I'm always listening to that. I was inspired by what they're doing. Um, these cats out of, you know, you know, a lot of underground independent stuff from New York. That's, that's, you know, it, it's incredible, but not enough people get to hear it because, you know, the, the budgets aren't like they used to be, um, but just, you know, so much stuff, but those, those sophisticated savage Mad Lib, Jason Famous Beats, uh, Rhinoceros Funk, White Owl, those Yazi, Yazilla, those are those are the people I, I would say. You know, if you remember anything in terms of new music right now, check these cats out. They're doing hilarious guys, stuff, man. brilliant stuff, genius stuff. It's worth it's worth a minute. Yo, tell you, man, this interview is worth a lifetime right here. <laughs> All right, man. This is another episode of Wine and Hip Hop. John, DJ Jabaz. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show and, and, and gracing us with your presence, man. This was fire. Hey, listen, thank you so much. Cut this QFC record on all platforms. Fly from Evil, QFC, Quantum Field Crew. And hey, Jermaine, thanks for having me on. Man. This has been incredible. Shout out to everyone associated with uh, with Wine and Hip Hop. And, uh, and thank you again. Peace. You the man, bro. Peace out. This was a moment in wine and hip hop brought to you by Crew Love.